Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we'll be doing something a little different, because we're not looking at a movie today. Instead, we'll be looking at the History Channel's TV show, Project Blue Book. And joining us today are two people who are perfect to offer a fantastic insight into what it takes to create a TV show that is inspired by true events. David O'Leary is an executive producer and was the creator of Project Blue Book. And Sean Jablonski, who is an executive producer as well and was the showrunner on Project Blue Book. Before we start today's discussion, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here is how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the real Project Blue Book did not investigate the Roswell crash. Number two, David and Sean each had their own UFO experiences. Number three, Project Blue Book investigated Dr. J. Allen Hynek's involvement in the 1978 movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right. Now it's time to connect with David O'Leary and Sean Jablonski about the History Channel's Project Blue Book. I'd like to start by asking about the idea of making a show about UFOs. There are some people who immediately switch off when they hear the term UFO mentioned. Either they just won't believe what you say, or they'll simply... Watch it to find a way to tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> I can only imagine how difficult that is when you layer that onto the normal difficulties of trying to pitch and create a show that's based on UFOs. So my first question is simply, why Project Blue Book? Why did you decide to create a show around UFOs when you could create a show that doesn't have nearly as much controversy surrounding it? Uh, David, as the creator, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure thing. And uh, hey, everybody. Th and Dan, thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, listen, for me and for Sean as well, UFOs have been sort of a lifelong obsession, interest. I've always, always had a deep interest in this subject matter going all the way back to when I was a kid. I'm not sure why, but I just like was always, you know, fascinated with the unknown and it always rang true to me. I would watch Unsolved Mysteries in the 1980s or scare the hell out of myself and read Whitley Stryber's Communion when I was like nine or 10 years old. And it just, it always felt authentic and true. So like, especially, you know, some of the more famous cases. In terms of Blue Book, as I became an adult and moved out to LA and pursued a career in writing and all that kind of stuff, this was sort of right before like, you know, end of 2017 and like UFOs kind of really hit the news again. And there wasn't actually, frankly, a lot of UFO stuff on TV. X-Files had sort of come to its end. And I'd become a bit of a UFO history buff. And Project Blue Book always just felt like such an interesting, ripe sort of world for TV 
in that it was period, you know, it had all these other interesting elements in the 1950s in terms of the Cold War and the, the rise of the atomic age and all that kind of stuff. And then just a plethora of like incredible cases. And then really just a focus on the characters who, who sort of led that effort with Dr. J. Allen Hynek and Captain Ed Ruppelt, sort of the first director of Project Blue Book, both who basically shifted sides and became, you know, adamant believers that there was something worthy of rigorous scientific study here. So I think it began with that idea of, can we tell a story, uh, you know, sort of historical drama through the lens of these characters? And I was fortunate that, like, I guess there wasn't a lot of UFO stuff at the time. I think Project Blue Book presented a certain natural engine with sort of a a kind of a, a different case every week with a really interesting backdrop of getting to kind of tell it in this sort of noir 1950s sort of shadowy sort of way. And we were just very fortunate that, you know, it took some time, but that eventually uh, it found a home with A&E Studios and History. How about you, Sean? How did you get involved in this? I came a little later once David had, you know, sort of researched and written the script and had connected with Robert Zemeckis. And I think they had had a series order by that point. You know, I've been in the television business for, it's like 25 years plus at this point, I think. And so I've, you know, every TV show needs to have a showrunner at some point. And David, as talented as he is, um, had not been in that position before. And so if you're going to start any business, you're generally going to want somebody who has that experience to sort of be in there and help guide the process and understand what's coming up in front of you and how to run writer's room and just just all of the things you're not going to know if you haven't done it. So I essentially interviewed for the job, which began with a meeting with David at a diner. We realized very quickly that like him, I, I've kind of been obsessed with UFOs my whole life. It's been something that since I was a kid, I remember seeing one when I was 10 years old, swear to God. And so it's just something I've always been fascinated with. So we were trading stories to the point where we stayed so long, I got a parking ticket. And then, of course, you've got to go, you've got to go through the gauntlet of meeting the studio and the producers and the network and all that stuff. And it just felt like such a very sort of natural match. And then we just sort of moved forward from there that, you know, we really connected on having the same passion in terms of that. But so I'm just happy to have had the opportunity to meet someone who shares that, you know, in terms of how I look at just even the phenomenon and want to tell those stories. I, I feel like, I mean, it's very much in vogue right now for, for people to be talking about UFOs in a very serious way. And I think like any new science, and it is a bit of a science now because we're just starting to discover it because we have sort of the minds that are being applied to it and the science and the technology and the um, credibility of the people who've come forward. But for people, to go back to your earlier point, for people who can, you know, when you talk about, is there controversy around UFOs or why stir that up or when people say that? You know, my first question is like, well, what do you know about UFOs? I would ask, like, what do you know about the history of UFOs? Because a lot of people want to throw it off as something tinfoil hat wearing silly. Like if they were here, they'd be landing on the front lawn of the White House and blah, blah, blah. But when you really understand the history and the amount of cases and the amount of credible people that have come forward, physical evidence, you know, visual evidence, all of this, it is without a doubt something that exists. And I count myself as a true believer. 
And the second question I would ask somebody is, what do you believe about it? What do you have to believe to believe that it doesn't exist? You know, and oftentimes people will sort of stumble and go, well, I just think that this would happen if there would be this, that the aliens would have said something by now. And then when you dig into that, you realize it's just sort of a, of a belief people have that's sort of based on an, like on a feeling, right? Which is just like, oh, I don't know. I just feel like it wouldn't happen this way, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, when you sort of dig into that, it's, I would imagine the way people would have felt before, I don't know, we discovered bacteria when we didn't have a microscope. You know, it's demons inside your body. You know, that's what it's got to be. And then when the science caught up, and we were able to see what was actually going on, there's still a bridge that has to happen where people have to get on board and understand that the facts that are there and the people that are studying it are not crazy. And then all of this stuff gets borne out. So I feel like that's a very important pursuit right now, especially in a world where truth is such a um, malleable concept. And so I love the idea that David and I, again, I think found a, a path and a passion towards wanting to get those ideas out there, that it's be part of that notion of getting the truth out to an audience. You said you had an experience at 10. Is that kind of when your interest in UFOs started? A hundred percent. I was in, uh, I was in New York city, which where I grew up and saw lights in the sky moving silently in formation. There were these, these long sort of hexagonal type lights and I remember very clearly, I can still see it very clearly, that moment where you look up and you're like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Could it be what I think it is? It has to be something like just this, you go through this whole range of emotions. And, um, and of course, I was a kid, you know, but I still remember it very clearly to this day. So yeah, I mean, that's where it had to start for sure. David, have you ever had an experience? So I had something weird happen to me much later and it was actually after i sold the the show but before the show got picked up to series and i actually like didn't share it for a while be, except with like my wife basically i was walking home it was a weird i was walking home i lived i lived then i lived uh kind of near the grove for people who knew los angeles i was walking home through my neighborhood weirdly i had to park a couple blocks away because of street parking which was sort of a rare thing and it was a quiet night it was kind of late and then the other strange thing was i was actually on the phone at the time late with a friend of mine which was also kind of just not used but i'm so glad i was that i wasn't by myself because i think i would have freaked out even more and i saw what looked like a teardrop shaped sort of self-luminescent almost like a green chinese lantern emerge from out of the trees like 25, 30 feet above me. And I stopped and I did exactly what Sean does and what so many UFO witnesses do and sort of be like, is that a drone? What is that? I'm not hearing any like worrying. Then I don't know if this happened or not, but it felt like it started, it sort of stopped and it was kind of flickering and it sort of started to move towards me. And I panicked <laughs> and I ran I'm on the phone with a friend of mine and he's sort of laughing. He doesn't understand what's going on. I'm like, dude, I'm like, and I duck under it. And then it just sort of like continued on kind of floating over the, um, sort of the, we, like the area I lived in is sort of two story houses. So it's just like, you know, like 30, 40 feet in the air, just over the houses and continued behind, behind the, some line of trees and stuff. Other than like talking to my wife about it, I didn't share it for like a year. 
I like didn't want to be the guy with like a UFO show who like suddenly had this weird UFO experience. But I eventually did sort of talk about it because I also realized sort of to Sean's point too, and just like in terms of getting the truth out, like I don't know exactly what it was. And hey, maybe it was a drone and I was just, I freaked myself out or something. But it was very oddly shaped and it was very weird and sort of how it moved. It was sort of like a balloon, like a lit up balloon. But so that was sort of the, um, that's the only time I think I've seen something where I really couldn't identify. It felt, you know, and then I think so much about UFOs is sort of how it makes me feel. It definitely felt strange. Like it felt, it, 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 it felt like something as opposed to just like, oh, that's, you know, I just like couldn't place what that would be especially because it was like in the branches of trees. And then later on, like actually when we were doing the show, like we found out there are like these cases of green fireballs. We even did an episode on them. I didn't actually know that at the time. And that's sort of like what it kind of felt like to me. So I don't know. I don't know what that was. Yeah. You you usually don't try to fly a drone through the trees. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It was very weird. It almost looked like it came out of the tree. Like it was very like I saw it, it was in the branches and kind of emerged from like it was very strange. Wow, that's weird. Well, go go back to the show. You've both worked on shows that are not based on true events as well as of course Project Blue Book which is. What are some of the differences in the ways that you approach a show when it's based on true events compared to a completely fictional story? Uh Sean, maybe let's start with you this time. I'm going to steal a quote and I don't know who to credit it to, but um, I, I, you know what? I think it was Mark Twain. It's like, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I think you find that out right away. Now I've had the, I tend to love historical pieces. I've done a few development wise, you know, over the years, Tesla and Edison, the Bonapartes, there's been a couple other in there. And it's been a bit of a learning curve trying to apply storytelling to what actually happened. And, whether it is the network exec saying, I don't care, we need better television <laughs> and what exactly happened in that moment, or just an instinct from a storytelling point of view, taking history and making a story of it, you can do a documentary, right? There, that, That's why they exist because, and, and a lot of times there's great history that you couldn't write this stuff. But when you're trying to make a television show and you need to sort of hit your act breaks and you need to engage an audience and you want to give your characters an emotional arc, you kind of have to, and it sounds like it's simple, but it's actually kind of hard. You have to sort of really give yourself permission to expand on it because otherwise you're sort of, I remember feeling, I definitely had a lot of deference to the history and the people and you never want to mess with that. But at the same time, you have to, again, do your job and, and, and sell it to an audience. I just think you have to have the courage to kind of get out there and really tell the story that you're, you're wanting to tell and, and have respect for the people and the material, but be a little fearless in, in how you do it. Otherwise, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to cross the boundary and just say, nobody's ever going to say what a really wonderfully factually accurate television show. Do you know what I mean? And get you, get yourself ratings in an audience. And I even know like something like the queen. I mean, how much can they have been in those rooms where those people were talking and understand what was said? And lastly, I, I had a really good mentor. I grew up under basically Tom Fontana, who was sort of my mentor into the business. And he said, if you're going to do something historical, look for those, look at the history and then find the moments in between that might not necessarily even be written about 
get in there and use your writing ability to figure out what could have happened, what could have connected those dots, how could have the, how could those characters have moved from point A to point B that's not being written about. And thankfully, audiences are very forgiving these days. And I, I have to say, like, Quentin Tarantino was a big inspiration <laughs> in a weird way. When I saw Inglorious Bastards, I went, wait, you can't kill Hitler in a theater? That never happened. And yet at the same time, I remember as an audience thinking, this is the most exhilarating thing I've seen because it felt like he was having the courage to go, I want to tell the story that's going to get people excited. And I think if you set the table for your audience that way and say, look, this is inspired by true events. We are not telling that, you know, accurately we're inspired, you know, we're inspired by it and doing it. I think you're okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we, we, we quickly realized is exactly what Sean said, that we needed to put entertainment and emotion first. You know what I mean? Like people are going to tune. Otherwise you're just going to watch a documentary on project blue book. If you just want to know the facts you know, it's all there. You can read. There's wonderful books. We have, we've read them all. But we needed to tell a story that about people, about human beings going through these events. You know, we kind of quickly realized the heart and the, you know, the heart and soul of the show was Heineken Quinn, that relationship, along with all of our other sort of six primary leads, the generals, you know, Susie and Mimi, all that stuff. Mimi and Heineken. What we found a way to do, I think, rather hopefully rather well, was take those kernels of truth and then weave them into a, a narrative yarn that was hopefully enjoyable, entertaining, emotionally evocative, but also encouraging people to be like, hey, like that, like every week was a case that really happened. Uh, within within an episode, we'd, we'd have little Easter eggs of things that were really going on at the time. We'd explore other things that were sort of in the social fabric of the 1950s, bomb shelters and and, uh, you know, paranoia and, and, you know, the CIA, you know, like people tapping your phones and all that stuff. Russia's interest, interest in UFOs, all that stuff. So, yeah. We also had Paul Hynek, who was, you know, Jay Allen Hynek's son as a consulting producer on the show. And, you know, that felt like anytime we were, you know, doing something that made us a little squeamish or whatever, he was, he would always say, which is wonderful. He'd say, I, I think my dad would love this. And so that really gave us, a lot of permission, uh, it felt like, to kind of run with it and get a blessing. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Just for that, that topic, you're talking about UFOs, it, you know, <laughs> unexplained, right? And then government cover-ups where obviously we don't know a lot of stuff that's going on there. Did you find Blue Book to be more challenging to fill in some of those gaps than completely fictional because there is just a lot of it that we don't know? The thing we talked about very early on was that it's we're riding a line between we can never say they exist or the show goes away because the whole idea is they're searching for the truth, right? So that was always a hard line to kind of kind of deal with uh, and something we were very aware of every episode. And one of the challenges too is like you realize it's not a it's not a cop show where you show up and there's a body. Our guys show up and somebody saying, no, 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 I saw it in the sky. <laughs> you know, what I mean? it's like, so how do you how do you tell those stories and give it all of that sort of energy and interest and, and you know, a revelation every act kind of thing? That's right. And the, the thing we realized was that we had to thrust our leads and our audience into the case. We had to thrust them into these events to some degree. So things would happen to Kynick and Quinn as they would investigate a case that would often start with a, a civilian witness or a military witness or multiple witnesses seeing something they couldn't explain. It wouldn't, the case wouldn't be over. It would lead down a rabbit hole of, of more revelations. But as Sean said, it's exactly right. We would always want to walk that line. Like we'd always have like a plausible other answer. No matter how deep in we went, I mean, there's an episode early on where we go to, uh, you know, Operation Paperclip. We go into like this hidden base, and there looks like it's like they're staring at what looks like an alien, an alien in a tank. But there's an alternate explanation there that's given as well, so that there was always this sense of like, you know, which truth are you going to believe? Because I think one of our goals too was obviously we wanted to attract audience members who were interested in this subject matter. But we also wanted, you know, we were also very cognizant that like half the population, you know, doesn't think there is much to UFOs. And we wanted to make sure that we we presented an interesting sort of like dilemma where both sides could be like, oh, maybe maybe the, you know, the Lubbock lights were plovers, you know, or like or maybe it was temperature in aver, inversions in episode two in 110, you know, at the, in the season one finale or things of that nature. So. So that there was always this balance because like, yeah, as soon as you just say it's it's real definitively, it's the mystery is gone. The truth is, you know, that the quest is over. Part, part of Blue Book, like from history, was to come up with some of those stories, some of some of the plausible explanations for that. Can you give an example maybe of a, a plot point in there where you, you did depart from the history that they maybe the example that Blue Book gave and, and had to kind of come up with your own? Oh, gosh. I mean, we listen, you know, I mean, well, there were certain threads that we, you know, as far as we know, the Hynics were never infiltrated by a Russian, a, Ru- a female Russian spy, as Paul Heidegg would say. I don't know. I don't think that ever happened. You know, so certainly we, we were adding certain narrative 
drama. But but like what is well documented was that Russia was very interested in not only their own UFO programs at that time, but in what America knew about UFOs at that time, because they were like, is this top secret, you know, technology, things of that nature, you know, that we have yet to release. And we we always were excited by the idea that, oh, the Hynek family could be a soft target into sort of an intelligence gathering mission from Russia about that. And then things obviously complicate from there because even our even our sort of Russian spy character is sort of becomes sort of morally torn about which side she should be fighting for and all those all those wonderful things. I think from a case standpoint, though, I think we always tried to reverse engineer what became the official explanation like the plovers, like temperature inversions with the stuff over D.C., even Hopkinsville, where as crazy as it seemed with the, there was like a, a monkey that was dressed up in a space outfit. That That's all based on fact, actually. One of the guys in the family worked at a circus and, and there was like monkey, trained monkeys there. Like, because in a way that's almost too absurd to make up. <laughs> I would be embarrassed to like pitch that in a room. So I think we always started with something we'd kind of reverse engineer it. And, and, and again, it, to go back to your very first question, try to sort of honor what was the initial you know, truth of the actual story. One of the joys of the, of the show for me was like when it would air, I would like live tweet the show and I would beforehand kind of put together the list of all the things, all the cool little like truth nuggets that we had pulled from here and there and maybe throwing them in a bit of a blender to tell a cohesive, compelling drama, but really to invite audiences to go like research this, like, hey, this really was a real thing. Or like, you wanted this case is based off this event, so that there was always these sort of like footings that audiences could have and like, oh, okay, great. And then they can go off, they can go off and see the case. And then even at the end of every episode, if you watched it on history, there was like a two or three minute documentary piece about the case that inspired this week's episode of Blue Book. And that was sort of conceived from the very beginning once we landed at history to draw a line in the sand so that we could clearly be like, listen, we're not trying to deceive. We want to like tell a cool story, compelling narrative. But here's the, the root of, of where this comes from. Now go off, you know, do your own research and come to your own con- your own conclusions. So it was nice to have that other sort of piece that would help plant it in historical context. Yeah, I like what you, I like what you said, Sean, about the uh, the monkeys being. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, and that's one of the things I, I love about the the show that I do being able to dig into some of that because knowing that that's based on fact, like that's that's something that that's insane. yeah somebody could easily look at and be like, oh, well, obviously that couldn't have happened. But well, yeah, actually, (laughs) some of the crazy stuff does happen. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think Chernobyl is probably what, like the gold standard in terms of trying to sort of tell an accurate story based on a historical event. And, uh, you know, we, again, had to sort of decide early on that there's got to be a slightly different version of the show. And, and and also just we knew, too, that, you know, and David had put it in there. There's so much family and soap going on, too, that we could also sort of lean on that. Well, you mentioned a couple of them earlier, some of the uh, stories that you got to cover, like the Lubbock Lights and Operation Paperclip, uh, Area 51, even got uh, Hynek's involvement in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, what was your favorite episode in the series? Oh, gosh. I mean, I would say I'm torn between three. (laughs) I think both Sean and I share a deep, deep love of the Close Encounters episode, which in many ways, in in, in some ways, feels almost like the culmination of the show. Like you could almost like, like end it there because like we end, you know, we end obviously in a very different way. 
Um, but it, and, and I was thinking about that actually this morning of why that that episode re- re- registers so much, I think, for all of us. I mean, some of it was just, you know, the magic of it all coming together, intercutting between two different time periods. But I think one of the things for us, too, is it, it, it's one of the clearest departures in tone for us. We were a rather conspiratorial, dark, noir tone, which is like, I love that tone. Like most of the things I write are like sci-fi mysteries, supernatural mysteries. Like I, I, I can't get enough of that. But this episode, the case is ultimately has this wonderful sort of positive spin. You know what I mean? Like it so much captures a sense of wonder instead of a sense of, of fear. Um, it, it sort of stands out because that's the other side of this thing. Like we don't want to forget that it's not just about conspiracies and being deceived and, and public denial and disinformation, misinformation, all that stuff. But it is about the wonder of what's out there. And I think that that episode in, in some ways encapsulated that that wonder. And then the other two episodes I'm really, <laughs> I, I really love. I love our like big finale episode. So like 110 and 210 for me also stand out as just like cinematic like movies. You know what I mean? Like I think Sean and I are both really proud of how those episodes turned out as well. But I don't know. I mean, like, uh, I, I could go on. Like, we did two quote-unquote bottle episodes. I think Sean wrote them both, which are also some of my favorites. That was Abduction in season one. And um, I forget what we, oh, What Lies Beneath in season two, in season two sort of the revelation of who, who Susie really is and all that kind of stuff. And that's like, that's we put all our characters just in a room, essentially, and had to tell, tell an amazing story there. So, I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, I love all of them. I definitely the bottle episodes are fun because it's so character based, and you know the challenge of we're a show that has to go out and look at UFOs. How do you actually, how do you keep people in the house in order to tell the same show? So yeah, those bottle episodes are great. Close Encounters, yeah, I mean that, and and exactly what David said, the finales, uh, just they're so much fun and and um, and happened. You know, that's the other thing. Everyone like the. The Close Encounters, based on George Adamski, who was a guy who was just like that character who we sort of had in the show, uh, which was so much fun. And then, you know, Paul Pinek makes a little cameo as a camera operator in the Close Encounters scene, which was so nice as a way, you know, to sort of an homage to his father. And he was saying just even being on that set was meant so much to him. And and yeah, as David put it perfectly, it was it. It, it took a break from the usual tone and showed the wonder of it, which was wonderful. Paul, Paul Hynek's cameo in an episode about his father serving as a, like, there are so many meta parallels because Paul was a consultant for us on the show. And then we did an episode about his father being a consultant for Steven Spielberg, who's like Zemeckis' close friend. It was just like, for me, I'm just like, oh, wow. Like, that's just like some like, incredible incredible miracle that 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 we were like somehow able to like pay that pay that all off and, and do it do it some justice <laughs> it all just fits perfectly together if there is one ufo related incident that pretty much everyone has heard of it is the roswell incident and that's the case uh, you started season two with with uh two episodes covering it did you feel that because that is so popular roswell is so popular that it was more difficult to cover than some of the others on the show like you had to be more accurate to the story in, in a way? It was hard to do because Blue Book didn't investigate Roswell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was our biggest challenge at first, was having to go back and you go, well, how can we tell Roswell when it happened 
you know, five years before Blue Book was even born. And so we kind of had to have a, a Roswell 2.0, but yet take all the facts from the original and sort of make it feel current, you know. And so that probably more ironically, more than any other episode, had the most kind of, I guess, would you say fiction to it? Because they never investigated it. Going back and, and sort of interviewing those witnesses well after the fact and then sort of making it feel current, you know, it was it was intimidating. But, you know, because we're such research fiends and, and love the story so much, we knew right away it was a two parter just because there's so much information in there. And, you know, you add it with its opening season two, you want a big, you know, a big sort of a way to sort of come back in, which interesting story we it wasn't our initial impulse to put roswell as a season opener and that um you know gradually through you know breaking of story and then input from the network we got to uh, a place where it was like nope we're doing roswell to open season two which was ultimately the smartest choice as a way to sort of bring the show back yeah that's right at one point and for a while actually we, we really wanted to do maury island as 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 our as our opener i remember that you know, but it all sort of works out like it sort of reveals itself as you break it. Like we found a much better way to do it, you know, ultimately down the line. I, I think that episode was like episode six or something like that of, of season two. Five, I think 205, yeah. Or 205, yeah. But yeah, I think for us, like cracking the case on Roswell just became about, well, if, you know, we, we had done a bunch of research on Roswell and it just became, well, OK, if a town was really silenced and, and traumatized in this way, what would be the, the symptoms of that six years later? And once we sort of realized, well, what if somebody was trying to get the truth out of Roswell and, and staged like, you know, like this crazy event in the desert where this where where a saucer allegedly went down and sort of held the held the U.S. government kind of hostage, like I'm going to re- unleash the truth. It, it created a way for like our guys to go back in there. And then uh, and then the other thing we sort of re- had the revelation of it was like, oh, what a great character uh, journey we can take with Neil McDonough's character. And as a general returning to a scene of a crime, something that he's never fully been able to square and also delineating, you know, for those who watched the episode between Valentine and uh, uh, Harding. Yeah. Thank you. Harding. Uh, uh, in terms of like, who knows what and who might really be in control because for, for season one, we play, we, you know, we, we, Neil, Neil McDonough is sort of the, the face of it a little bit more, but, it, but then we sort of flip the script a little bit like, Oh, perhaps Valentine is more the veteran, more the senior is actually sort of hiding some things from Harding as well. So it's, you know, it just, it, it gradually reveals itself to us as we, as we found a way to do it, you know, of like, oh, here's a way to do it that really is interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting that um, because I, I think a lot of people when they think of the government cover up, it's like the government and they're all in it together. And as I was watching it, yeah, I definitely got the sense that even these two generals, they don't even they don't know everything that the other one knows. <laughs> and so you, so you start to get that sense in there as well. Just really, really, really w- well done to put that together. The general that wound up going into Roswell from outside was Twining, who Harding is based on, and was credited a lot with, you know, some of those strong arm tactics that were used. And and the idea of when Brazel gets brought onto the base, the idea of somebody who had been in charge of terrorizing an entire town. And there's, again, I'd encourage anybody who has even an inkling of curiosity to go to look at it. There are, there are plenty of firsthand accounts of people who were there. 
And then, you know, are you going to choose to believe somebody saying I was there, my life was threatened by a military official, and I was told if I spoke, I would be killed and go, okay, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of those witnesses who came forward and said the exact same thing. So you have to ask yourself, am I going to choose to believe they're all crazy? You know, they're all making this up for the sake of, you know, a story. You know, it's it's fascinating. And also with, um, you know, Valentine, who was based on Hoyt Vandenberg, you know, ultimately he went on to be part of the Atomic Energy Commission, which was like an ultra super secret in charge of our nuclear program. And I think he was, did he come head of CIA or was brought into the CIA or something? So it, it again, it, it felt like we were fortunate enough to find this truth in the history and really try to bring it out in the, in the storytelling. There is a petition going now to bring the show back for a third season. I'll make sure to add a link to it in the show notes if anybody wants to sign it. But let's say that petition is successful and you're able to make a third season of Project Blue Book. Have you thought about some other stories that you might like to cover that you didn't get to in the first two? Oh, only a little bit, right? You know, well, some of the fans may notice, but other listeners may not. We actually had a, a third season writer's room that uh, ended that w- where we basically broke um, all of season three. So for us, it's it's been particularly hard, I think, to, you know, and then and then basically COVID hit. And I mean, literally, like the last day of our writer's room was like the day the world shut down, like it was lockdown um, in, tw- in March of 2020, mid-March of 2020. So, you know, listen, we, we, we would love nothing more than to than to continue that journey. So especially because for us, it in a weird way, the show lives in our heads. Uh, like a season at the end of season, like we kind of knew where we were going. We, we we mapped out a whole path, and that makes it hard too because I know how excited we Sean and I are <laughs> about that season. I mean that season, that season is like some of our, our our favorite stuff, and like we were so jazzed to do it. And I I mean we can tease it a little bit too because it's you know it felt that. Um, it felt like such a natural progression. Again, also history on our side. There was the great UFO wave of 1953, 54 in Europe. Um, and so we decided to go, you know, as, you know, to sort of make it bigger. It's a lot of it takes place over in Europe um, because that's where that's that's where the sightings were. Um, it was it went from like a handful of sightings in Europe to thousands a day all of a sudden it was like off the charts and when you dig into the history of europe and the history of some of those cases again it it, for us it felt like this is what the show is it is about the phenomenon and it's not just an american phenomenon it's a worldwide phenomenon and so we we got to explore some seminal cases and um it really did i mean like anything it felt like we were hitting our stride and we we broke every single episode so yeah, but there's some wonderful. Yeah, England, France, Italy, Italy, Russia, Russia. Like it was just like we. Yeah, we. It was. It was. You know, we went big. Heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it was heartbreaking. Utterly heartbreaking. Utterly heartbreaking. Well, hopefully, hopefully, we'll get to see some of that in the future. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you about Dr. Hynek's perspective on UFOs because in the real Project Blue Book, he was kind of started pretty skeptical. And then his position changed as he was investigating these. So as you were researching and writing and putting together this 
Did your opinions change at all? I know you were both big into UFOs beforehand, but did it change at all as you were creating the show? What changed for me was doing research on Heineck and realizing how smart he was in terms of hypothesizing the multitude of answers that might exist, right? Even in like his book, The UFO Experience, or, you know, his numerous books, he he would hypothesize, you know, he, like, especially with some of these cases that delved into like, close encounters of the third kind or, you know, seeing, seeing actual occupants or entities or whatever you want to call them. Heineck entertained every theory under the sun from they are interdimensional in some way, like the planet is also theirs somehow, to they are interplanetary spacecraft, to they are us in the future, to they are like, I, I remember like you spoke a little bit about sort of the robotic nature of that, of the of how these creatures are described, like, are we dealing with artificial, extraterrestrial artificial intelligence, <laughs> right? Like, on and on. And I think that that, that, um, I mean, I, you know, you know, just, I always love that the notion that like maybe the answers could be as complicated, complicated as the questions. We could be dealing with a multitude of, uh, sort of phenomena happening simultaneously. We're just not, we're just not sure, you know, what, what sort of the answers are. But, uh, that, that was the shift for me was like, don't hang your hat on really any one theory because it could be it could be something else it could appear one way but actually actually be something else i always love that you know yeah i would say if anything to that to that end is like it only expanded i I mean i was already having had knowledge of it sort of uh you know uh believed in the phenomenon and you know I, i i couldn't profess to have the answers but had certainly done the research um but if anything it just expanded it expanded the scope of what was possible, like especially with interdimensional beings, AI from alien civilizations, are they even here? You know, all of that stuff. The biggest thing for me that I found doing this was how the sightings ticked up right after and around the time of our us basically getting nuclear capabilities. There are so many incidents of UFOs in and around nuclear missile sites turning the missiles on and off in and around Los Alamos. It, once we got the bomb, this, that's when everything shot up. That's really when, that's really when Roswell happened. That is one of the most fascinating stories to me because to me, it's the clearest evidence yet. And this is coming from high ranking military officials who testified in front of Congress about this. Again, this, this stuff is all available to go. You can watch it. You know, and, and this is on my decide for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Decide for yourself if like the, you know, the high ranking colonel who said I, I was in the missile bunker when the this, you know, object came and basically cut the power, then turned it back on, set our missiles to launch and we couldn't do anything, then took it away. Again, you can decide if this guy just decided to make it up and ruin his entire career. Um, but to me, that's the clearest evidence. It's one thing for a civilian to see something dart across the sky and go, I saw something I can't explain. It's another thing for military personnel who are overseeing our nuclear weapons to have these objects come in and around and, and, and basically control them. Because to me, that's communication, right? I don't, that is like, it's, it's them saying, we can do this to you. And now it's up to us to go, are they benevolent? Are they, they, are they saying they can destroy us? Are they trying to start a war? Like what is happening? 
it's not just like, oh, I saw something, I don't understand it. They're communicating in a way and have the ability to affect our world. That phenomenon blew my mind. Um, and if you go down that rabbit hole and look at all the instances, not just in America, but in Russia at the same time, it's, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And it goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of this, of this phenomenon. I mean, Ed Rupelt in his book talks about it, how they would expect to see UFO sightings over like, like, uh, atomic detonations in the South Pacific on sort of top secret military weapons testing programs in the forties and in the late forties and the fifties. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, sort of aspect of this. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point to, to bring up, because if, if you put it in a historical context, World War II had just happened. So there was a lot of explosions <laughs> going on, you know, and that didn't bring anything out. But it but the nuclear side of it does. Well, you had the Foo Fighters in World War II, really. That was a very a sort of a big thing back then. Um, all the pilots describing what these objects were. And we touched on that, I, I think, a little bit in the first season. And historically, it's not like UFOs began right then. They've Columbus talked about UFOs, you know. So, but there was a clear like explosion of sightings. No pun. Well, maybe pun intended. <laughs> uh, right around the time we got the bomb, that is when the wave just took off, and it's also where the military, you know, had really you know, gotten involved. And again, you know, the, the really, it began with, um, you know, uh, why am I forgetting his name? The sort of, you know, first thing with flying saucers in Oregon. Oh, uh, uh, Kenneth, Arnold. Kenneth Arnold. Kenneth Arnold. Yeah. In 1947, which happened literally three weeks before Roswell. And one of the things in Roswell that, that is interesting, they did nuclear testing and around that, but that was also the Roswell was the home of the 509th Bomb Squadron, which was the squadron that dropped. The Enola Gay was in Roswell. That's what dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And all those, all in and around there, the White Sands Missile Base, the Allen Mulgan, I can't remember the other one, but all those nuclear testing things were around there. And the, the amount of saucer sightings were just off the charts. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I guess I never had put it together that the Enola Gay was there in Roswell. Yeah. When people think of Roswell, they always think of it as a, sleep, a kind of a sleepy desert town, kind of random, small thing. It's got, it has huge, Roswell Army Airface, Airfield had huge, huge sort of uh, military significance at that time. It was very important. And, and, and that whole area that was, it was a massive testing ground for top, top secret weaponry and stuff like that. So I don't think it's at all, you know, to Sean's, to Sean's point, anyway, a coincidence that this was a hub of sort of UFO activity at the time. Well, I, I know I asked you about your your favorite episode, and it's hard to pick a favorite. But do you <laughs> do you have a, a favorite story from the set as you were creating the show? I have two, and I'll tell them really briefly. One is in abduction, which Sean wrote, but he unfortunately was for whatever reason, not able to be on set for, but I got, a, I got to be up for like nine and 10, or maybe he, were, he was up for a little bit, but I don't think he was up there for this part. When the character is recalling his sort of abduction experience, uh, because it was what's called a bottle episode, we had to do it. We couldn't rely fully on VFX as we were trying to keep the, bu the budget down. That's what a bottle episode is. And our director Alex Graves had this brilliant idea of like, he's supposed to be levitating in a ship, right? And like sort of finds himself in this alien environment. 
So they really strung up uh, the actor's name, I think, is Malcolm Good Goodwin or Goodwill. Forgive me if I it, it's you know, and they strung him up and they shined all these shimmery lights on on him in the background on a screen, and they they blasted the entire sort of soundstage with 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 smoke. And it was this magical alien kind of like experience come to life. Like you could not see in front of you. The camera guys are like, you know, all the crew was so quiet and it was, it just, it looked incredible. You're like, it felt like you're watching a VFX shot happen in front of your eyes. You know, it was like a porthole open to another dimension. If you were looking at what we were actually filming. Uh, So that was incredible. And then my other, you know, I mean, obviously all the like fun kind of anecdotal moments with the cast are amazing too. But the other thing was, in 110, we blew up a car. And that was, that was a, just a, like, we, and we all sat around and, like, literally had popcorn and, like, blew it up on a, it blew it up in a, in a sort of a outside in an amphitheater kind of an environment against a green screen. And, um, that was, that, it, it blew up a nice 1950s car to boot. And that was just a, a fun day to see all that happen, too. I have a zillion photographs of that. I'll just say briefly, I, I think it was literally day one of episode 101. We showed up on set and it was the, um, uh, the farm that what played for the farmhouse in the, um, uh, in the first episode. And it was early morning, cold Canada. And there was this fog that had just blanketed the entire area. And with this sun piercing through, it was some of the most dramatic looking landscape I'd ever seen. And it was the arrival of our characters through this fog, you know, up to this farmhouse. I, 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 it's like, I don't think we could have gotten, we couldn't have wished for anything better. And it was day one. So it's just basically everybody's connecting. Everybody's coming with their A game and so excited to be there. And it felt like, felt like the gods were smiling on us saying, this is the right way to begin. You talked a little bit about uh, potential season three, but in the first two seasons, was there anything that you wanted to add in there, but you couldn't for one reason or another? Well, we had like whole episode ideas that for one reason or another, we had we had to scrap, you know? I mean, there was all all kinds of like, you know, curious, weird. I mean, there were sort of like UFO cults pop, 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 popping up in the, in the early 1950s. And like, we thought about doing an episode that sort of explored that idea about sort of like how people use this arrival of this sort of new phenomena into the public consciousness towards their own sort of self-serving ends and how people could get kind of roped into that, to that kind of thing. Gosh, I mean, there was all, you know, there's always things there's even within episodes, there's scenes we had to cut, of course, or, or little moments that like for timing purposes, we're like, ah, we just can't, we can't, we got to pick and choose. I'd say too, David, you know, your his very first, his early draft of the script, you know, and it was always described as, uh, you know, X-Files meets Mad Men because there, he had a really wonderful touch with the soap that was in there. And is in it, again, it was as much about personal life and, and Joel, who was the kid, there was even a storyline with him. And through the natural process of any TV show creation development, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you got to start leaving, pushing things aside in favor of, you know, the engine of the series, which is our two guys in the cases. And I think we tried hard to make sure that we like Susie and, and uh, Mimi and all of that to kind of create another world we could go into that reflected the Cold War era times. But I mean, for me, I loved as much the character stuff as anything. And I thought there was certainly more stories to tell with, you know, Mimi and Susie. 
and to have a female perspective as well as a home perspective and to see what's really going on, you know, uh, during the Cold War back home. You know, we tried a little of that with the bomb shelter early on in season one, you know, which was a real thing. You know, they would put ads in the newspapers for that stuff and how the kids would feel at school. And God, you're reminding me of we yeah we had we came up with this whole storyline with Joel as like this 1950s boy kind of stand by me esque sort of storyline with like he had a crush on his like neighbor this other little girl and then like but then they, and you get to sort of explore the fear of Russia and the Cold War through the lens of children the irony being of course that they're it, like while they're like sitting while Joel's at his neighbor's there really is a Russian spy next door having dinner at his house like all this wonderful stuff that like it just you know you got to pick and choose we're a ufo show so it was like uh you gotta you know but it would have been nice to to to, you know to do some of those things as well you know yeah (laughs) i forgot about all that thank you guys so much for coming on to chat about project blue book i know until there's a season three hopefully there will be a season three but until then can you share a little bit about what you guys are working on Sure. Well, I mean, you know, again, it's it's a pat. You know, the world is such a passion for us. David and I are working on something right now that we're we're um, you know don't want to say too much because we're uh, in the early stages of let's say negotiations. But uh, it's back in the UFO world, and uh, we look forward to bringing those stories back to television. Hopefully, in the in the coming. In the coming year, I should say. So, um, you know, if Blue Book what our appetite, we're excited to serve it, uh, another meal coming up soon. Yeah, we just wanted to also give, you know, in regards to the, the Save Blue Book campaign, you know, a huge shout out to Carson, who has led that effort. Uh, I know he created a website called SaveBlueBook.com, which is amazing. And just a, a wonderful way that he's collected so many, um, you know, artifacts from the show and imagery from the show and and all of our fans who uh, remind us that the show mattered to them because that that is the most important thing, and that's why we that's why we did it. So we're forever grateful. We we never give up hope. Uh, you just never know. You just never know what's going to happen. So we have a season three ready when uh, when when a, as soon as someone's ready to take it on. So you know, thank you to all the fans. Thanks again so much for your time, guys. Yeah, thanks so much. You're wonderful. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, everybody. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. And me, Mackenzie Davis. I'd like to thank David O'Leary and Sean Jablonski once again for taking the time to give us a peek behind the creation of the History Channel's Project Blue Book. I'd also like to thank Karsten Krikorka from Save Blue Book for helping to make this episode happen. If you want to learn more about the campaign to save Season 3 of Project Blue Book, you can visit savebluebook.com or sign the official petition at change.org slash savebluebook. As always, you can find those links in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time to answer the two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the real Project Blue Book did not investigate the Roswell crash. Number two, David and Sean each had UFO experiences of their own. Number three, Project Blue Book investigated Dr. J. Allen Hynek's involvement in the 1978 movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. The real Project Blue Book did not investigate the Roswell crash. That is true. As Sean explained, the incident at Roswell took place five years before the real Project Blue Book started, so they had to be creative to cover Roswell in the series. Continuing along to number two, David and Sean each had UFO experiences of their own. That is also true. We heard both David and Sean share their own experiences on the show. I've never had an experience myself, but they're fascinating to me. So if you have had an experience with a UFO, I would love to hear it. You can find my contact info at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. That means number three is the lie. Project Blue Book investigated Dr. J. Allen Hynek's involvement in the 1978 movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. In truth, the movie the real Dr. Hynek was involved in was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's the one we saw depicted in the Project Blue Book series as well. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. Today's episode took a total of 27 hours to create. Now, that 27 hours is only my time for this one episode. It does not include my guest time or any of the overall things that I have to do to keep based on a true story going, like maintaining the website, social media, and finding new guests, and so on. There are a lot of things that take time and cost money that go beyond things associated with this one episode or any single episode. But there are all things that are required because if I didn't do them, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you found value in today's episode, if you enjoyed it, I really hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.